You're listening to Project Halo, helping the homeless with awareness and learning while observing the issues and solutions. I'll be talking to different professionals and organizations across Southern California that are connected to the homeless communities here to get an inside look on what's really happening. I'm your host, Crystal Zoller. I'm talking with John Masseri, the CEO of The People Concern, which was a merge of two former organizations, The Lamp Community and OPCC. He's been working with nonprofits since the 80s and has a passion for helping people. Did you ever have someone close to you that experienced homelessness that inspired you to do this work that you're doing? No, I never had anybody in my family or very close to me who had experienced homelessness. I actually started in the nonprofit social services sector back in the mid-1980s during the AIDS epidemic. And so I had several friends, close friends and colleagues that were impacted by the AIDS epidemic. And that really catapulted me into community service in the nonprofit sector and then came to what was then the Ocean Park Community Center, OPCC, back in 1999, because I always wanted to work with people who were homeless and marginalized and victims of domestic violence. And our organization kind of brought all those pieces together. Right. The People Concern is a merger between the OPCC and LAMP community, right? That's correct, right. The People Concern was actually formed six years ago in the merger between what was the Ocean Park Community Center and LAMP community, and we came together in 2016 under the banner of the People Concern. Speaking more on homelessness, what do you think the root problem of homelessness is here in Los Angeles? Well, there are many causes of homelessness. I mean, people fall into homelessness for a variety of reasons. Economic, I mean, the cost of housing is really expensive in Los Angeles. The cost of living is expensive. So people can lose their jobs or have their income reduced. Going through divorce, victims of domestic violence who are fleeing their batterers. DV is one of the leading causes of homelessness among women and children. Mental illness, substance addiction, all of these are factors that contribute to people's homelessness. What keeps people homeless is the lack of affordable housing. So we know what ends homelessness are houses, are homes for people. But the drivers into homelessness are complex. Could you speak more on the connection between domestic violence and homelessness? Because I know that's a service you focus on at The People Concern. Domestic violence has been a core service, The People Concern, for 45 years. We operate actually the second oldest domestic violence shelter in the state of California. And for women and children, it is a primary driver into homelessness. So what you often see is women who have been in abusive relationships when they leave their batterer. The batterer is often the only income source that they have, so they don't have financial wherewithal to be able to support themselves and their children, and so they end up homeless fairly quickly. And that is true not just in Los Angeles, but that's a major driver if you look across the United States. Gotcha. Besides the specific services for domestic violence, what do you think is one of the most useful homeless services that the People Concern offers? Our philosophy is you have to meet people where they are, literally where they are. So for someone on the streets, a multidisciplinary street outreach team is a very useful intervention because it's often the first point of contact that people will have with a service provider. So that's very useful service. Our access center in Santa Monica, where people can walk in, have access to showers, to laundry, to clothing, to food, to a medical clinic, that's a very useful service. Interim housing for people who are moving 
off the streets and on their way to permanent housing, and then, of course, permanent supportive housing. So all of those interventions are important. It really depends on the needs of the individual. All those services are driving towards getting people into permanent housing and keeping them permanently housed. But the way people access services, it really varies. That's why it's important when you're talking about a service delivery system is to have multiple points of entry, multiple touch points for people so that they have various options in terms of how they connect to housing and services. Right. Could you speak more on the people that are out on the street helping people that are not housed yet and may not even know where to go for services? Can you tell me more about that? Sure. Well, we hit, we field right now 18 multidisciplinary street outreach teams, meaning that they have a primary care provider, they have a mental health clinician, they have substance abuse expertise, and then they have peers with lived experience. Uh, these are people that have been formerly homeless, who work on the teams, and they go out every day um, around the county and actually make connections with people. So that is often, as I said earlier, the first point of contact or often the first point of entry for people into the service delivery system. And so it starts with, it could be street medicine to help people who are in crisis. It often results in making connections to some kind of temporary or bridge housing, and then ultimately with the goal of getting people connected to permanent housing and then ongoing services right. to keep them housed. When your employees that are going out to the streets to talk to people, how often do they get pushback from the people that are there? Do they often you know, not want the help or how is that kind of interaction? Is it difficult at times? Uh, yes, it is difficult. I mean, you think most of us imagine if we ever found ourselves homeless, that if somebody came and said, hey, I'm here to help you, we would jump into their arms. But that's not actually the way it works often. It takes a long time to build relationships with people. And our experience has been that the f pace of the work, you know, moves as quickly as the pace of trust that's built. So we're working with people that, especially if they've been on the streets for a long time, they've often been in and out of systems or institutions. They've often been made many promises that have not been fulfilled. So they're often very skeptical and mistrusting. And so it takes a long time to get over those barriers. In addition to that, people may be dealing with really serious disabilities. They may have mental health challenges. They may have substance addiction. They may have chronic health conditions, they may be a survivor of domestic violence, or often what we find is some combination of all of those things. So it takes some time to sort of break through that trauma and, and those barriers. That being said, you know, one of the benefits of having consistency on the streets is that over time you get to know individuals, you understand what they want and what they need, um, and then it's easier to make those connections. But we, sh you know, don't want to misrepresent that, you know, everybody on the street is welcoming outreach workers with open arms all the time because it takes time. Trust has to be built. I want to touch a little more on mental health. What does the people concerned do specifically regarding mental health in the homeless community? And if you could speak on that. Yeah, well, we have a very robust mental health um, department here and have for many years. So we provide um, individual and group therapy. The street medicine teams have uh, mental health professionals on them so we can provide clinical support on the streets. We have psychiatry um, for people who need medication. Um, and it's a big part you know, of our work. That's not to say that everybody experiencing homelessness is mentally ill. They are not. But mental illness is a significant part of um, the work that we do, and certainly for people who've been on the streets for a long time, we see that mental health is a huge 
um, issue for the people that we serve. Yeah, um, from my research so far, it's it's not only that they have a mental illness, but you have a lot of trauma after being on the street for so long. So when the street medicine team goes out, and um, you said psychologists go with them as well? Psychiatrists. Psychiatrists mm-hmm. go. When they build those relationships, how do you keep the trust there? Do they go back to the same people every week, or how is that built? So we do it a few ways in terms of the trust. So the street teams are really a conduit, one of the reasons that we have the same practitioners on the street teams as we do in the clinics as they get used to seeing the care provider. So it wouldn't be uncommon, for instance, for a physician or a mental health clinician to go out on Monday, for instance, see somebody on the street, and if they wanted to come in to one of our clinics, that same practitioner, those practitioners would be in the clinics on Tuesday. And so it's a way of building continuity. What we find over time is that as we are able to provide services to people in real time and things that they really want and need, that goes a long way to building trust with them and encourages them then to come indoors. Coming up next, I'll be meeting with the homeless multidisciplinary street team from the People Concern down in Santa Monica. Okay, so I'm here with the street team, and could you guys all introduce yourselves and tell me the role that you play in the street team? I'm Jonathan. I'm the substance use case manager for HMST, which stands for the Homeless Multidisciplinary Street Team. I'm Katie. I'm the housing case manager, so I deal with the housing applications and housing retention, that kind of thing. Okay, cool. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm the clinical case manager. Um, I do the mental health stuff, connect people with therapy, medications, whatever they need. Gotcha. So you guys are connecting the people that are out there on the streets right now to services that they may need. Yes. But these are also the top 25 highest utilizers of emergency services. So like they have severe substance use stuff and they've got severe mental health impairments and they've been living on the streets yeah for a significant amount of time how do people who are experiencing homelessness get on these lists of being the top 25 ours is done through the city and it's mostly through data generally the folks that have the most police contacts and like fire department contacts those numbers are taken given to the city and then from there, they are like, oh, this person's had a lot of contacts recently, and then they'll be referred to us. So these people that have a lot of contacts, how long do you end up helping them out on the street average before they actually get into housing or supportive services? Generally, as long as possible. I mean, it could be a long process. It could be a short process. It kind of depends on them and where they're at, like maybe mentally, emotionally. Some folks, you know, their impairments may be so severe that we've been working with them for years and haven't really gotten very far. Some are doing, you know, better and more functional in a way, as you, I guess you could say. And we're able to, you know, get them connected with services and housed generally like within a year. Okay. Yeah. So it all depends. I'll start with you, Sarah. So you do case manager work for most of the mental health services. What do you think is one of the biggest struggles when you're trying to connect people to mental health services? I would say that for most of them, they have had difficult childhoods. They have been out on the streets for a very long time. No family connection, not a lot of support, a lot of mistrust with systems. And, you know, just being on the streets alone is so traumatizing. So I think it's all very much intertwined with the substance use, the mental health and trauma, and also just being very medically vulnerable. 
which is great because we have uh, medical providers that come out with us. But yeah, I think the most important thing is like building relationships with people because like I think we all understand that having support from family or friends or anybody is really important to like want to make a change or yeah. to feel like there's hope. Yeah, and people have been, a lot of our clients have been in and out of hospitals, so that's traumatizing, in and out of jail. And so I think, like, the greatest part about our team is that there's low barriers. There's no, like, a certain amount of time where we discharge. Like, we can keep them on our caseload for as long as we need to. And we, like, build our relationships with our clients and so that they feel like they have a space to just trust and make a change. And I think that's really, really important. I mean, we have clients who have been on our caseload for three, four years, like since the very beginning of the team. And I think that that's the most important thing is building trust and connection because I think that's something that they've lacked forever, really. Right. Yeah. And uh, Katie, since you handle housing, what do you think is your biggest struggle in trying to connect people to housing services? Um, This is just my own opinion, but I think it's just like the lack of available resources. Like there's always a limited amount of like units that are available. So there's always like really long wait lists and there's always so many like barriers, so many steps to like getting them indoors. And so I think it can be very discouraging for people and it takes a lot of patience to be, you know, like doing the application. There was one that I did back in August of last year and he's just now like getting into doing the background check and signing the lease and stuff like that. And we're in March of the next year. So that's quite a long time. It really is. Yeah. So I think it's just having more housing resources available. Do you handle helping people into interim and permanent supportive housing or one over the other, just whatever they need at the time? Yeah, it's kind of just up to them what they're open to, but we also do uh, interim housing referrals. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. And as far as the substance abuse part, Jonathan, what do you think is the uh, biggest struggle on your end? Hmm. For my folks, the main issue has definitely been access to immediate resources. A lot of my folks, you know, are very in the moment. I'll find them or talk to them and they want to go to detox now. Unfortunately, you know, if you don't have money, if you don't have private insurance, you have to go through Medi-Cal and that can take days, weeks to get into, you know, a facility with a detox bed. By the time that comes around, you know, our folks are on their second wind, they're going off doing their thing and it could be, you know, another month, if not longer before they feel like they want to get some help. Gotcha. And is there something specific in your life that led you to work directly with the homeless? Uh, For myself, I was in the substance use field previously, and that, you know, um, I guess life experience brought me there. And so I had also worked closely with my director and old teammates when I was at the other program, so I knew them from here, so was kind of a natural transition. Gotcha. And Katie, what about you? I would say it's been pretty recent. I think going through 2020, just as a country, we all saw like a lot of the inequality and stuff that exists. And so learning that year about just all of the needs that some of our neighbors have, I think that really pushed me to be more interested in like housing in particular and how we can make it more accessible. Gotcha. And Sarah, what about you? I guess for me, it's uh, living in Los Angeles. I mean, just living all over Hollywood and walking outside of my apartment and seeing people just laying there sleeping on the streets and like looking really vulnerable. It, 
it started to affect me. And so I feel like I just wanted to learn more about it and also try to help people. It's just crazy that we've kind of normalized it, right? Like we're just, people are just like walking by people, like struggling. And it's just gnarly to me. I feel like we need to kind of think more collectively. Take more actions to be more proactive about it instead of just thinking it's normal. What would you think is something that community members could do to help people that are going through this? I don't know. I mean, I do think it's great that, you know, people, um, you know, I've seen a lot of community members give people living on the streets like money and food, which I think is very helpful. But I also think there are websites, LA Hop, like I feel like people don't utilize that as much. You're able to go on LA Hop, write a description, like identifying factors about somebody that's living on the streets that you're concerned about and outreach teams or like certain agencies see that and they're supposed to go and outreach and help. So I feel like people could utilize that website more. And I think it's just in general, people kind of, you know, assuming that everybody is a criminal and it's like just kind of this like druggy junkie on the corner of the street it's Mm -hmm. like all the stigma it's like i think we've lost our empathy for people and our compassion and i think that that's a problem i think it's utilizing your local social service agencies like going up and asking like how can i help what can we do for this person or just getting on the la hop and like identifying people that's a great resource it's there for a reason i think it could be a really great thing but i just don't think people are taking the time to do it right and they just don't really care like they're doing their thing they're walking by and they're just like whatever yeah you know it's really sad it is sad yeah i mean it's exciting every day is different there's always something new to learn something new to do i've been here almost four years and still learning things you know, about whether it's medical stuff or some other wacky system trying to navigate through. Um, so, you know, I enjoy it. It's interesting. So every every single day is unique out on the, on the street as a street team. Yeah, and I also just want to add, like, I think it's really cool to connect with people. Like, we've really learned a lot about our clients and realized, like, oh, you know, these are human beings, right? Like, who've gone through a lot of struggle, and we've gotten to create relationships with people. And I know I've learned a lot. Like we took a client yesterday to an AA meeting and like that was really interesting and great for me. And I think it's just great to see that you can relate to people. Everybody struggles. Everybody's going through something. I think just people have opportunity and resources that other people don't. But I mean, I think it's cool because like Johnny said, like we're just learning new things every day, learning new things about people. And we're always curious. And yeah, you can never... I think learn enough. Right. Because Every- humans are so complex and it's really interesting. Yeah, especially when everybody's so unique from, exactly. yeah, from each other. There's no person that's exactly the same. Right. Katie, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I mean, I'm the newest member of the team and so I've been here for almost a year, but I definitely, like, when I was first transitioning onto the team, like, before I lived, like, around Westwood and so there were a couple unhoused people just around there and so I would kind of try not to make eye contact or like engage them at all and now I spend like 40 hours a week deliberately looking for people and not being able to find people so I think it's a really interesting change to like go from two like different extremes but yeah I agree like with what Sarah and Johnny were saying the most gratifying part is just being able to make connections with people a shared human experience so we're all human well thank you guys so much for sharing what the street team is and how it is being out there every day because it does seem like every day is unique okay so Sarah you were going to tell me that there's something special about this street team yeah so like working on a multidisciplinary team is really great because basically we're bringing services to the street so it's like our clients who are like 
severely disabled, impaired with their substances or mental health. It's hard for them to go into clinics or stay medication compliant. So the pieces we have the substance use case manager, the clinical case manager, the housing case manager, and then we have a psychiatrist that goes out with us every Wednesday. And then we have a doctor, a medical provider that comes out with us every Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So we're bringing wraparound services like to you on the streets, you know, wherever you're staying on the streets to your home, basically. Right. The medical provider and the psychiatrist are building relationships. You know, they're here every week. So they get to build these relationships with the clients as well. So the clients trust them. Right. So I think that's the piece that's really great too, because we're able to bring all the services to the client in their space. You all know each other. So you're also building trust as like a little group. Right. Like we, I kind of feel like it's a family. Like it's true. Like we all know each other really well. Like we spend a lot of time together and we also spend a lot of time in dangerous situations together. So it's really important to trust each other. So we have a great, great team. And like we've worked with Ernesto for a long time. We've worked with all our providers. So it's I think that's the other piece that is so impactful because we're so close. Yeah. And we have Ernesto here and Ernesto is a PA, a physician's assistant, right? And so you're actually the medical provider that goes out and could actually treat any actual medical condition they have. So do you want to talk about what you do and how it's been for you? Yeah. So for me, I'm a PA, physician assistant, and coming into medicine, my mindset was always family practice. So, you know, it's kind of where I ended up, Venice Family Clinic. And so I come out as the medical portion of the team. But for me, it's funny because I came into it just family practice. And then our clinic does a lot of medical outreach, you know, street medicine. And honestly, it was just like, hey, they need help in this program. Can you come help out? And I was like, sure. And just since then, just kind of been a part of joining the teams when they need support, when they need help. So it's like a regular schedule. We go out and just kind of address medical needs. And I always tell people it's kind of like bringing the clinic out to the patient. You know, a lot of these clients or patients just don't have the ability to keep to an appointment, make a phone call to schedule, follow up, you know, do all the things that we kind of feel is like the norm, you know. So that's why I feel like it's so helpful to be able to do that. And then we just create relationships. Sometimes it's just a simple like chat and connecting with somebody. And then once they kind of need that more, um, how can you call it? Uh, Deeper help, more help. Yeah, like more, more assistance. More. That's when we kind of get the team to help us, get them into the clinic, get the lab work done, get them to their appointments, their specialists. And then that's when you see people do really well. And that's kind of when we see those successes, you know. Yeah. And then I have a backpack. So in the backpack, I carry supplies for wound care. We carry just like all the equipment to do routine vitals and things like that. Are you prepared to handle an emergency wound if you see right. someone with like a really bad injury yeah, or exactly. how do you handle that? So that's how our, the team working together, we're constantly communicating while we're out in the field. We go out in teams. So like if it does get kind of dangerous or how to approach situations, there can be drug overdoses. So we have medication to help with that. They're all trained in how to do that too. Um, that doesn't happen that often, but you know, they're ready. Yeah, and there's even, you know, communication with the city here in Santa Monica. There's like ambassadors out in the city who kind of reach out to the program and then notify us. And then we go out and address it. So there's kind of this approach that we're all working together. If there's ever like a true medical emergency, then I'm there to support while we get like 911 911 involved, fire department. 
And then we advocate in the hospitals too. You know, sometimes we go to the ER, our patients can't advocate for themselves and properly disclose what's going on or mentally they're not stable enough to do those things. And that's when we're there to do that support and that communication with the medical team in the hospital. And like an example today, we have someone who got injured, seen in the hospital, got discharged. Being that we have a connection at the hospital, we can look at records, know what's going on, and right away kind of funnel that patient to the needs they they require. So that's kind of part of what we'll be doing today with a patient that we'll be following up on. Yeah. What do you think is one of the scariest moments being out on the street and handling a medical emergency that you've experienced so far? Oh, man, let's see. Well, I mean, top of the list is like just mental crisis for some patients who are really struggling, maybe like hurting themselves. And then you kind of actually having to back away and just getting the support that you need. I mean, we've had stories of people on overdosing and we've had to be there as a support or alcohol withdrawal. That was probably one of the biggest, like most common things that you'll see that we've experienced. So I would say those are like the top main things that we see all the time. And how do you deal with seeing all this stuff and then having to, you know, how do you not take your work home? That's big. And I'm happy you're asking that question because I think self-care is one of the top priorities that we need to instill in our mental health, in our... When I say mental health, I mean the program of mental health who addresses this like every day, me in medicine, seeing it every day. So for me, it's just focusing on that self-care to have avenues to kind of help me with with those. Because yeah, you bring it home, you face it every day. And then it is difficult. By not doing that stuff, I think that's when the burnout happens. And I feel in our field, medicine, and with what we're trying to do here, it can happen. So I always advocate for that. (laughs) And uh, Sarah, I wanted to touch on something you mentioned. You said you end up in dangerous situations together. Could you mention an example of a dangerous situation you had to experience or go through? Yeah, I mean, I think mostly... A lot of our clients, specifically on this team, just have really severe mental health impairments. And I think what ends up happening is they become symptomatic. So irritable, aggressive. A lot of our clients have been in and out of jail and and had to protect themselves too. So they've built up kind of this wall. And also I think like just the pieces of the mental health are like aggression and irritability. And when they become symptomatic, yeah, they can lunge at you. Some of our clients have weapons, obviously, to protect themselves on the streets. You have to be careful. And like Ernest is saying, like if they're in a mental health crisis, it just can be really dangerous. And so that we just have to be careful and watch each other's backs. Yeah. Yeah. Ernesto, I had asked them earlier, Jonathan, Katie, and Sarah, what is the hardest part or what is the biggest struggle that you have in what you do with the uh, people who are experiencing homelessness on the streets? Sure. Just thinking of this from a medical perspective, one big struggle is just I'm used to like having this preventative health mindset in the clinic, right? So I see a patient and we're like getting their labs done, getting their preventative health needs done, vaccinations, you know, all these things. And then we get on the street and the person's just like, doesn't want to do anything. But it's that feeling where you know you can do so much more, but it does take a lot of engagement and personal choice, right, to be able to do it too. So that's something that's always difficult because you know what they need, you know how to provide it, maybe even just medication. And then it's just working with them at their level, at their decisions, and then helping them that step at a, one step at a time. And that's where it gets a little hard because sometimes their step for you is not enough, but it's mm-hmm. it's their initial step. Right. So you got to work with that. So it's changed your perspective on how to approach things. Yeah, of course. And, you know, and that's something that I think that's amazing for me is that you get to know them very well. 
you end up getting to know them a little bit better. You know, their personal history that maybe some will share more than others. And then you kind of understand maybe why they're reluctant to get care, take those initial steps. And so instead of being someone of being like, hey, you got to do this and being really angry or something, you know, you're just kind of working with them right. at their level. And I feel like with that, we get some more success. And, and I just keep that with me that idea so every time I'm out there and like yeah. want to do so much more but they're taking it one step at a time so yeah. and Ernesto is there anything you want to add or anything you feel is important to mention about the street team or your part in it even though there's we don't see progress maybe as a community you know there is a lot of successes out there you know I don't, I don't know if they mentioned our peer advocate we have a person here who was previously homeless who went through all this what we're talking about and works with us to engage with uh, clients out on the street just to recognize there is a lot of successes out there with this kind of support and it might feel it's a lot of resources but at this point I feel like there's nothing else going on and I feel that it's if we keep this up maybe it could be a way to kind of show how this is possible those people really struggling to be able to get the support they need and be part of our community you know some right. some people are working or like they're housed and stable doing well so i would say there are few successes maybe they're not talked about as much but you know here a lot of work put in so that that can happen and it's just good to see that you know yeah well thank you so much so i think we're about to head out and i'm going to actually be able to see what you guys are doing out there on the streets it seems like all of you guys play a very important role and so I think this is going to be a very eye-opening experience for me. And now I'm here in the car with Jonathan and Ernesto on our way to the manor, a board in care to see one of their clients. Where is the largest amount of the homeless community in Santa Monica? Probably the parks and beaches, I feel like. I would say, yeah, probably like Palisades Park and or the, the beach area. Gotcha. Yeah. So since you guys have specific clients that you go to you just have general locations of where they'll be or how does that work how do you find them yeah so initially like when we're first engaging the city will refer them to us and they generally already have an idea of where they're at where they hang out so we'll go there look for them sometimes they're there sometimes they're somewhere completely random and then you know little by little you just kind of get to know where their hangout spots are and then as you build the rapport you know they'll let you know you know where they're where they would rather meet and stuff like that. And then some of our folks are indoors, you know, housed in shelters and interim housing. So then, you know, generally they're there. Gotcha, okay. And Ernesto, you, you told me about the backpack. Is that all you have in order to be able to treat people? Yeah, so pretty much anything wound care related we can carry from our supplies at the clinic. Oh, wow. Um, we even do Una boots, which are like a special wrap that help with swelling in the legs. Um, in, in wound care. We were just planning maybe if our patient we see soon, we might have to coordinate for removing stitches or staples, and that can be sometimes done safely in the field. Wow. And then working on like carrying some essential medications, but that's just a uh. policy thing that's getting worked through in the clinic. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> but the idea is maybe we can carry some basic medications and also be able to administer that if if we can as a prescription kind of thing. What kind of basic medications do you think would be beneficial to be able to carry with you? Let's say antifungal creams or steroid creams, analgesics, the, the more common medications, some typical antibiotics that we could use, things of that extent that are helpful out here. Gotcha. Body wise cream. Treatment for uh, scabies. Or... Are those common uh, yeah. issues out here? Yeah. yeah. 
Is it common for a lot of these people to not be able to shower often? Or is yes. that why they have a lot of these specific like skin or, you know, fungal type issues? Yeah, definitely. For Santa Monica, like we have our access center, which is a drop-in center that provides showers, laundry, case management, and other things. Some folks don't like, you know, maybe they have trauma there and or they just don't want to be around that many people and or some, you know, may have been kicked out, you know, aren't really allowed back due to, you know, violence or whatever kind of past issues they may have had. And, you know, some just aren't in, you know, the mental health state to take care of themselves, to make it to access center to shower also. Right, right. Yeah. So it's the drop-in center he's talking about? Yeah, so People to Concern has the drop-in center in Santa Monica. That's where Venice Family Clinic also has a small like established clinic within the building. Yeah. And it's been there many years now. And that's where we have a, you know, walk-in homeless clinic gotcha. uh, for a homeless that's... patient clinic. Right. Imagine it like a regular functioning clinic. We can do lab work, administer vaccines, do medical visits. And it's Monday through Friday, like a half day. Right. That's where they can also get the resources that might be available to them, like a case manager, showers, food clothes so it's a cool tie-in because as a clinic you could help them with their medical needs if there's something going on that i can help with with a referral for a respite bed or if there's a chronic disease going on where they need to be housed for a little while we could try to work with the program to do that gotcha. so that's where we can you know make yeah. those things happen hopefully yeah so i think we just arrived so we're at a place right now called the manor jonathan do you mind telling me just a couple sure. quick things so about it it's a boarding care and it's yeah not permanent housing but it's a place where we've been able to get a few of our folks in in the meantime while they're waiting for their apartments to be ready, sign the lease and all of that. So it's like interim housing? Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And right now they're about to go see a client. And Ernesto was talking to me about the ability to bring medication for antipsychotics that are now injectable. Okay, so we're here at the manor. And while we're waiting for Ernesto to get some medications for some of the clients, and the manor is, like Jonathan said earlier, a place where... It's sort of interim housing for people who are experiencing homelessness, relatively, right? Yeah, and it's a board and care. Yeah, a board and care. So they actually have like an office that holds the medications for the clients or the people that are staying here. But uh, Jonathan, I was kind of talking about your journey because you're the specialist about substance abuse. And so I was asking kind of what led you to this and you were kind of telling me your background. Do you mind telling me a little bit more of, or telling me again about yeah, it? Yeah, sure. So I started drinking at a young age, you know, just blacking out, not knowing where I am, ending up in different cities, things like that. On and off, did that for like five or six years. Grew up, you know, with family and friends uh, with substance use, drug problems, you know, going to prison, going to jail. And then I, you know, was finally, by the grace of God, able to get my stuff together, got into recovery, got help that I needed. And then right around then, I had an old friend from elementary school OD and die on heroin. And so that made me really interested in, like, trying to see how I can help, what I can do to give back. And so that led me to going to school for my drug counseling certification, which led me to working at the Claire Foundation for a few years, which was amazing. And then that led me to the people concern. Which is where you are right yeah. now, why I'm sitting here as well. Yeah. Do you feel like that background helps you kind of relate to the people you're helping? It definitely does. It does make like building rapport a little easier, um, especially when it comes to like the drinking and other substance use things. You know, it's 
it's easier for me to come from a place of non-judgment uh you know not being critical of them you know I, i've been there so it's easier yeah it's easier to relate in that aspect and yeah they understand it they you know they're able to see it and hear it and feel it too so um certainly you know been advantageous in that sense yeah what are the uh main types of drugs that you see like here in santa monica sure so for us i think the main ones are definitely alcohol and meth yeah you know i think sometimes it's used you know just kind of like as survival tools you know our folks aren't safe at night so you know meth can help them stay awake it can keep them you know in some sense safer and then you know alcohol just numbs everything you know it makes everything tolerable right for the moment yeah what are some of the things that you say when someone might be close to wanting recovery but maybe they're not exactly there but what kinds of things do you tell them or talk to them about in order to kind of just imagine if someone right now was listening and maybe they aren't you know experiencing homelessness but they're experiencing substance abuse what would you say yeah i mean i think a lot of it is just again bringing up that place of like non-judgment i know gerber mate brings up the island of support and you know just being there for them like a lot of the times it's just people need to be listened to no one's listened to them for years if not their whole life and I remember at Claire you know talking to folks who wanted to come in and I don't have to say anything they can just tell me everything that's on their mind and maybe that's all they need for today and sometimes it takes a little more and that's okay it's just you know Meeting them where they're at is what we call it. And, you know, if they're ready to do something today, great. If not, that's okay, too. What else can we do to support you? Because, yeah, it's a journey, you know, and sometimes it takes a while to get there. And, again, that's okay. We're not going to discharge folks. We're not going to yell at them or be angry at them. We're not going to be punitive just because, you know, they don't want to do something. What are the harmful effects that you see of meth and how do you kind of deal with those in your clients? Sure. So a lot of like paranoia, um, delusional like speak and thoughts. How we deal with it is, I mean, sometimes there's not a ton we can do. Sometimes it's so we have one client who severe delusions and like the same delusions on and off for like years now. And it's kind of just like okay like we're not gonna tell her that these delusions aren't real because that's not gonna help anything so it's what can we do to help support you to make you feel safer from these delusions from this paranoia and sometimes that's you know working with their housing management to change the locks one time it was getting a camera you know sometimes it's just putting them, you know, getting them out of that unsafe environment for a few days. Um, So, you know, they can get away from it, you know, kind of reset, recoup. Yeah, so it varies. Okay, so where are we heading now? We are going to the Access Center, one of the People Concerns drop-in centers where they can receive showers, laundry, and um, Venice Family Clinic also has a like a mini clinic there so they can receive like medical services as well. Um, it's also attached to Sam O'Shell, one of the people concerned shelter programs as well. Okay, and we're here. So as far as the benefits of this specialization of a team that you guys have that come out to people, this is definitely new. 
it doesn't seem like it's existed for a long time. And what can you explain about the benefits of it? One of the benefits of it is that we are so low barriered. Like pretty much we try and have no barriers for our folks because even the slightest barrier can prolong any kind of issue and engagement. So, you know, we'll meet them wherever they're at within Santa Monica city limits. And then I think Rand did a study on whether or not the program works. And it does with like increased contacts. The more contacts over time decreases the amount of emergency contacts, police contacts, jail time, emergency utilization. So we do know it works. It seems like people need support systems. And so if maybe they don't have family or friends, you guys become their support in like healthy ways, right? So like mental health and, you know, certain things they actually really need. And that probably lessens what you're saying reaching out they don't get arrested or Mm -hmm. they may not go get into as much trouble or they might actually stay in housing yeah exactly like you were saying like once they're connected with us as we build the rapport they are more likely to reach out to us when they need things and or once the hospitals and police department know that they're part of their team if something does happen you know usually we'll get contacted and be like hey this is going on we've had instances where like There was potential for like ticketing, but they were with us and we were able to work things out because they were on our team and they were willing to engage in diversions and things like that. So I just want to say thank you for letting me shadow you guys today and kind of see all the work you do. And it's it's a lot. And I will say it's pretty heavy for someone like myself who doesn't do this on the daily. So I want to commend you know, you, Jonathan, and your whole team, because I know there's about like five or six or seven of you. I didn't even meet every single person. Everyone has different specializations. But um, is there any final uh, note you'd want to leave with listeners on what you guys do and all of this? I would just say for folks like unfamiliar, uninitiated, you know, ways that they can help is definitely advocate, also volunteer. And then through that, hopefully they get a better understanding of what's really going on with our folks experiencing homelessness and that they can become more supportive of things that aren't really supported right now, like more permanent housing, more supportive housing, more shelters, interim housing, and even to go out there, safe injection sites, clean needle exchanges, all those things just to help our folks stay safe because they deserve it because they're people too. I guess I want to touch on one more thing because you said the clean needles and safe injection sites. That is something I'm not super familiar with and I've definitely been hesitant about that myself. What could you say are the benefits of something like that so that people who might be hesitant have a better understanding and can be more supportive of it? Sure. So with the clean needle sites, you know, that's just where folks can go to exchange like dirty needles for clean needles and it helps reduce the spread of hep C and HIV. So it keeps them safe and there's no syringes laying on the sidewalk and things like that. With safe injection sites, you know, it's where folks can go to use their substance safely under like medical supervision. So if there are complications, if there is like an overdose, there's people there that can help them reverse the overdose with like Narcan. And there's always social workers and or like drug counselors that are also there to help them if they want to talk about their use and if they want to do something about it, they can do that. And the data's there, you know, it does reduce crime. It does reduce, you know, the spread of uh, STDs and other health diseases. And it also, you know, does encourage 
them seeking treatment for their substance use issues. So I think people's worry, I'm just going to be devil's advocate here, would be that it might promote drug use. I know you said that there would be drug counselors there, but what would you say to someone who thinks it promotes drug use? Yeah, it does. I know how it can seem like it does, but it doesn't. It's not enabling. It's just a safe place for them because they're going to use regardless. You we're know, not providing the drugs. No, we're not providing the drugs. We're just providing the supervision in case there's complications. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, no now let's talk again with John Masseri, the CEO of The People Concern. How successful do you believe the Housing First method has been in Los Angeles? Well, if by Housing First you're talking about providing housing for people with wraparound services, that has been very effective. Our housing retention rates um, are 93%. If you look at housing retention rates across the county that are using Housing First with appropriate services, because it's not just get about getting people housed, it's about keeping them housed. That model has been extremely successful, and that's really the basis for permanent supportive housing. The idea is that housing is the single most stabilizing factor in any of our lives. When people have a safe place to sleep, to take care of their hygiene needs, to store their belongings, they have a base of operations, they can come in off the street, they have locked storage, all the things that all of us want. When people experiencing homelessness have those things, not surprisingly, they tend to want to maintain those things. From your experience working with all of this, what do you think is the biggest struggle in trying to progressively solve the issue of homelessness in Los Angeles? A lack of housing. I mean, at, at its core, um, not that housing in and of itself is going to solve homelessness. We've just talked about the importance of supportive services, and that's critically important, especially for people who um, have multiple challenges or barriers right. or um, are living with disabilities, but we don't have enough affordable housing. We've had a deficit of affordable housing for decades um, until we can increase the housing stock um, in both numbers um, and also in affordability for people who are living on fixed and very low incomes and will be poor for most of their lives. And until we can increase the availability of housing stock for those individuals, we're going to continue to struggle with moving more people off the streets. So that is the single biggest barrier that we face. At this point in time, do you think there is any um, policy or political change that needs to happen um, in order to get more houses built? Well, I think there are a few things on the policy level that, that need to change. First of all, we need additional, significant additional resources to build more housing. We need to find, you know, alternative ways to finance housing so that we can scale and sustain it. We need um, adjustments to the permitting process in, in terms of how long it takes to get a project built and all the additional costs um, that that adds to um, construction, which is significant, both in, t in terms of time and money. Um, and we need to reduce the barriers in terms of neighborhood resistance um, to get more housing built across the city and county of Los Angeles. So touching on the alternative financial income, you know, or financial possibilities for the housing that's needed, do you have any ideas on what those could be? I think there are a few models we should look at. First of all, for, you know, housing developers, we shouldn't make them go to, you know, four, six, ten different funding sources to be able to secure 
uh, their construction, their acquisition, pre-development, construction, and permanent financing often comes from multiple sources. So having one set, one source um, for capital would be very helpful. There are models where um, they use private equity, so private capital. So it doesn't rely on tax credit financing or sort of the more traditional um, government funding sources, which are fine and need to be continued, but those are not the only sources of capital. So f- creating and scaling alternative sources of social impact capital. So these are private investors that actually put up the money and get a small rate of return on the back end. So that is a very viable alternative that is available and could be scaled if all of these other regulatory barriers could be eliminated or substantially reduced, I think we would see a groundswell of private individuals willing to invest. And I think that would be a significant game changer for us here in Los Angeles. So when you say like the regulations, it's in a colloquial term, red tape, right? There's a lot of bureaucracy, right? The the permitting process, the inspection process, getting through all of the hurdles that you need, you know, just to get a shovel in the ground. And then after you do that, the inspections that are happening both during and after construction and then during lease up getting units inspected quickly, subsidized units particularly, that takes a very long time. There's lots of city departments involved. There's not good coordination between them. And so that all adds to the time and to the cost of development. The other part, the uh, the neighborhood or, you know, NIMBY, people want to help the homeless, but not in their own neighborhood. So it's a little hypocritical, but what do you think are viable solutions for that? Well, I think, frankly, we have to decide as a society what we're going to be mad about because there are only two choices. I mean, either we can be mad that people are living on the streets and degrading the quality of life for themselves and for the rest of the community, and it is a degrading quality of life for everyone. We have to recognize that, you know, massive encampments, um, vehicles, uh, people living in tents, um, you know, sleeping outdoors in, in, in a massive scale, even in a small scale, it's inhumane. But in a large scale does degrade the quality of life for them and the quality of life for housed people as well. So you either can be mad about that. The solution to that is we need to move them indoors. We need to house them. And so you ultimately, we've got to decide, do you want to be mad because we're going to build a building that's actually going to take those people off the streets? It's going to move them indoors. It's going to keep them housed. And the fact is, is the quality of affordable and permanent supportive housing if you put it up against any development in any community, stands out as good quality development, you know, good design, well-maintained, safe. All the concerns that neighbors have, there's plenty of research and plenty of history that tells us once these projects get built, they're fine. They integrate into the neighborhoods and everyone lives happily ever after. There's been thousands and thousands of these units that have been built throughout the city and county, and there's simply not a problem. So everyone's fears about all the terrible things that are going to happen simply don't come true. And so I think what we need to do is get serious about, you know, pick one or the other. The fact is, is that there are homeless people that live everywhere in the city and county of Los Angeles. And if every community does a little, then no community has to do a lot. 
That's a really good point. What do you think of the idea of like building housing somewhere far away and taking people who are from LA or why does that work or not work? Well, it doesn't work for a variety of reasons. First of all, we, we do work in, in the desert. And I can tell you that there are plenty of people experiencing homelessness in the desert communities that need housing. And if we're going to build housing in the desert, it should be for people who live in those communities who need housing. Um, and the, the communities there don't want to have people from other communities just being dumped. And, and I think it's also true that people um, who are experiencing homelessness have communities where they are. I mean, people who are in Hollywood on the west side, downtown, uh, areas around the city and county of Los Angeles, people on the streets build communities. And often people... Not always, but often people experiencing homelessness have lived in or around those communities before they became homeless. And so there's a familiarity there. And so the idea that we're going to build, you know, mass buildings in some other community where everyone can just be shipped off to isn't going to happen. It's never going to happen. Right. And it's unrealistic. And frankly, it's it's inhumane. Yeah. We can't just tell people to go somewhere else. Are there any new projects that the People Concern is working on right now that you'd like to speak on? Well, in terms of new initiatives, it's not, it's not necessarily new to our work. We have our new wellness center, um, the Ron Beasley Wellness Center in Skid Row, which is a mental health facility that will be open. Well, it's, it's open now where we have the street teams that are working downtown will be based out of there, but we have a room for individual and group um, counseling, psychiatry, and a lot of general health and wellness activities for individuals who are on the streets in Skid Row to actually come indoors. So we're very excited about that. That is not new. It's it's being moved from another location and expanded. And then beyond that, we have several hundred units of permanent supportive housing that we'll be leasing up this year. So we have several projects that have been in the pipeline with our development partners over the last couple of years, and we're very excited to see those units coming online so that more people will be able to be moved indoors. So those are the big, big things we're working on. What are the factors in order for people to be able to move into those supportive housing units that you'll be opening up this year? Yeah, so in Los Angeles, we have what's called a coordinated entry system so that Every person experiencing homelessness is assessed, and then that assessment is put into the Homeless Management Information System, HMIS, database. And then as units become available, individuals are matched with those available units. So all of the units coming online will be pulling from the CES list in the local community where those units are located. When you say they have to be assessed, do you know what the assessment is like? What kinds of questions they're asked or what factors are involved? It's pretty extensive. So it takes into consideration age, ethnicity, length of time on the street, medical history, um, including mental health, substance use, domestic violence. So it looks at a variety of factors and then basically ranks someone's acuity. In other words, the likelihood of them dying on the streets without a housing intervention. And the the idea is that the higher people score, the higher acuity they are, then they get priority um, for the available units to be matched. Gotcha. If someone is still experiencing like 
drug abuse or alcohol abuse, how is their acuity affected in that way? Well, usually it increases their acuity because if someone is experiencing substance use or mental illness, for instance, then their risk factors are higher. And so generally they score higher. Gotcha. And these housing units, they will have wraparound services as correct. well, right? So They're all permanent supportive housing. That's correct. Gotcha. Okay. And where do you see the future of homelessness in Southern California? Well, the future of homelessness, I hope we're going to see declines in the numbers of people living on the streets. I think we all understand that the last couple of years have been particularly challenging. I mean, we've seen an explosion of street homelessness over the last four or five years. The last couple of years during the pandemic, certainly we've seen growing numbers of encampments everywhere. We need to fundamentally, though, add to the housing stock. I mean, unless and until we get serious about scaling the availability of affordable housing units that are available, we're going to continue to struggle with this issue. A lot of resources from both the state and federal government are being spent now. We've seen, you know, great promise with the project home key sites taking hotels and motels and converting them to permanent housing. There are more of those units coming online every year. We're looking at, you know, adaptive reuse of existing buildings to build more housing. We're looking at master leasing. We're looking at every tool in the toolbox, as well as, of course, scaling the production and construction of new housing. So not any one of those things on their own is going to get us to where we need to be, but all of those things at scale will really begin to move the needle. So my hope and and our work is focused on uh, moving as many people into permanent housing as possible, you know, over the next three to five years. This is not going to be solved overnight. We didn't get into this mess overnight, and it's not going to be solved overnight. But I think what Angelinos want to see is they want to see steady progress towards people who had previously been living on the streets are now living indoors, not just pushing them to another side of the street or another community, right. um, but to really find permanent housing solutions for them. As far as the community and people wanting to help in ways that they can, maybe they aren't able to donate, maybe they can, but what do you suggest are good ways for the community to help? I mean, there are homeless service providers in every community in LA County, no matter where you live. And so if you want to do hands-on volunteering or you want to support those organizations financially, that's great. There are many faith communities that are active in homeless ministries. Um, that's a nice way to plug in. All organizations need volunteers, and so that's a nice way, you know, to help out. People can sign up for the annual homeless count. It just happened in January, um, but that's another opportunity where people can get involved. So there are lots and lots of ways to get involved, and I would really encourage people to do that because I think when you have the experience of actually meeting and talking with people experiencing homelessness and you hear their stories, it goes a long way to educating, you know, I think ourselves about the real challenges and barriers that people have and also helping, I think, us recognize that there's not that much difference often in people's life circumstances that therefore a different path many of us could have found ourselves.
Homelessness is multifaceted, and although a main issue is lack of housing, seeing a day on the streets, for example, in Santa Monica, as I did with the People Concerns street team, just showed me that there's a lot of additional issues that all become intertwined. Mental health services are vital. So is supporting someone who has maybe never had it before. Showers can be scarce, but so can a roof over one's head. Drug use on the streets doesn't usually start out the way people think. It might sometimes start as part of survival. There's many people hard at work to help the homeless community around Southern California, and I'm grateful to John Masseri, the people concern, Danielle, along with the homeless multidisciplinary team consisting of Sarah, Katie, Jonathan, Ernesto, a few members I didn't meet. But thank you so much for showing me what a day looks like while helping your clients. If anyone's interested in donating or volunteering for the people concern, go to thepeopleconcern.org. I'm Crystal Zoller, and thank you for listening to Project Halo.